For yes, we're still standing before the judgment seat of God, but the person whom, whom we need to give an account to is the person of Jesus Christ. And so, question, is he out of his mind in making these claims, or is he speaking the truth? That's what we have to wrestle with. And it's amazing to me that the apostles, after having watched his life and saw how he lived, watched him die, was there when he was resurrected from the dead and saw him ascend into heaven, they became convinced that Jesus was speaking the truth. And so we hear them saying, for example, Peter, when he went to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, he said this at his house, at Cornelius' house. Peter said, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Paul traveled to um, Athens and stood on the Areopagus and said this, Acts chapter 17. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So God has appointed that judgment, his judgment, his just judgment of all of this world be executed through the person of Jesus. And they work completely in tandem in, in executing just judgment. And Paul also wrote this to 2 Corinthians 5. So he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here at the conclusion of this Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus claims to be the judge. He claims to be the one through whom entrance into heaven is determined. Remember, he said to his disciples, I'm the door. No one gets to the Father except through me. So we've got to wrestle with what he is saying. Now, he's, he might be nuts. He might be completely off his rocker, or he may be telling the truth. And doing so in kindness so that we have a chance to adequately prepare to meet him. Giving advance warning is helpful because it allows you to prepare. That's kindness. So either he's nuts or he's incredibly kind. And the third thing that we see in this particular verse that Jesus claims God as his own father. My father. He said, everyone who does the will of my father which is quite astounding because um, this is the first time in Matthew that we've seen him use that phrase. And before we're finished, if we ever do so, um, and somebody told me the other day, um, you know, our, our family's taking bets on how long it'll take you to get through Matthew. We, we're thinking like three and a half years. But you know what? They said, but God's word, God's word is good. So take all the time you need, so to speak, was what they said. So not... I, I, that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're not... <laughs> I don't mean that in taking all the time in the world. Um, I, I'm convinced God speaks through his word. And if he speaks to us, I can only handle just a little chunk most of the time. We're just not wired for huge chunks of, of God's word. We can only digest little portions and pieces. And so... Our spiritual digestion, we'll, we'll see, it's going to pick up after we get out of the Sermon on the Mount because we get into narrative passages. So the speed will progress a little bit. But don't rush so quickly that you don't hear what Jesus is saying. He says, my father. And nobody talks like this. Nobody in his day would have spoken like this. 
Pharisees didn't talk like this. Scribes didn't talk like this. Rabbis didn't talk like this. Nobody used such familiar language to speak of God as my father. The Jews were even reluctant to say, our father. And yet here Jesus says, my father? First time this crowd sitting there listening to them heard this. He says this again several other times and it almost got him killed. In John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more because on not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, you know why C.S. Lewis said, this guy's either nuts or he's just totally lying or he's telling the truth. They were ready to kill Jesus for making these kinds of claims to knowing God. What is he claiming? He's claiming to know God in a way unlike anybody else. That's what he is claiming. And so it almost gets him killed. But here we see Jesus understood God was his own father. And he was in a completely unique relationship with God the Father. That's why we have to pay such close attention to the words of Jesus. Now in the next verse, 22, we see uh, something incredible that happens. This, this fact of, of the uniqueness of his intimacy just gets even clearer. 722, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? On that day, on that day is shorthand for the last day, the day of judgment. Uh, we find this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, particularly Malachi describes the day as the day when the righteous are separated from the unrighteous. Um, we see Matthew 25. Jesus does this again when he describes the day as a day when the sheep will be separated from the goats or the righteous people again will be separated from unrighteous people. And, and yet even if we didn't know that, we get a, a, a serious clue about this being a final judgment from the way in which Jesus is speaking because as he declares this, the response of the people is one that we can presume a condemnation has already happened. They're, they're responding to a, a final verdict. Well, it's already been given. We're not told exactly what is said, but their response tells us how they are responding to it because they say, what, what do you mean? Look at what we've done. How can we not enter into the kingdom of heaven? Look at our deeds, right? That's what they're pointing to. And they even say, Lord, Lord, right? They're calling him Lord. You're using the double emphasis of the word by repetition of Lord, Lord, look at what we've done. And Jesus is Lord. And most of the time in scripture, that phrase or that word, Lord, Lord, simply means master or teacher. Jesus even says this at the Last Supper, um, he says, you call me a teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But here again, at this final verdict, we get the sense of the Lord, Lord means more than just master or teacher because he's the one issuing the final verdict on the souls of these people. So it is incredible to hear him. They're saying, we're calling him Lord, assuming they're in a relationship with him, and he is saying, you're not. You know, even demons... Speak respectfully to Jesus. Whenever you move through the New Testament and Jesus encounters demons, they will often say either, I know who you are, son of God, or we know who you are, O holy one. He will be referred to with such terms. So 
So simply being able to use a respectful term does not, in and of itself, communicate a relationship. And look at what they point to. They point to their deeds. 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And here's the terrible words. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these, these people are shocked. Absolutely shocked. They thought they were in. They thought they, there's no chance I'm going to miss heaven. They assumed they were in, and yet they missed it. Look at what we've done. They're pointing to their deeds, prophesying, casting out demons, mighty works here, and all of it in his name. They were all about the name of Jesus and completely missed entrance into heaven. Now look at what they do. This is very interesting, the, the words that we see Jesus using. They say, did we not prophesy in your name? If you look up a, a, a definition of prophecy in the Greek-English lexicon of New Testament um, words, you will find this definition. Prophes to prophesy means to speak under the influence of divine inspiration. We saw that last week when we talked about what a false prophet is and what a true prophet is. A, a, a true prophet is one who speaks truly the words of God, who's truly been called to speak by God. And here prophesying is speaking under divine inspiration. And that's what they're claiming to have done, and yet they miss it. Now you might think, is that possible to even speak rightly under the influence of God and still miss heaven, not be able to be in a relationship with God? And the answer is yes. Not only because of this text, but think back to the Old Testament, a guy called Balaam. You remember Balaam, who was hired by the enemies of, of Israel to curse Israel? And when he went in order to, to follow the, the command to curse the nation, God turned his curse into a blessing. And so God controlled his speaking. He spoke rightly, but he was not in a relationship with God because Jesus says in Revelation that Balaam was one who taught idolatry and practiced sexual immorality. So God spoke through Balaam, and yet Balaam did not have a saving relationship with God with God. And the Pharisees the same. Jesus commends uh, the Pharisees says, do what they teach, but not what they do. Right? There was an aspect of the teaching of the Pharisees that was right concerning Old Testament law, and yet they did not have a saving relationship. And think about the false teachers who Paul wrestled with, who were preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, but yet they were rightly preaching the gospel. They had bad motives, but a good message. And so yes, it's possible to speak rightly about God, even inspired by God, moved by God to speak and not be in a saving relationship with Jesus. And then the second thing they say, casting out demons. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Note the power of the name of Jesus. Because it is possible to use the name of Jesus, the power and authority of the name of Jesus in order to cast out demons and yet not have a relationship with him. Right? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, the name of Jesus is the highest name of all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' name is the highest name of all names. We just sang wonderful songs to his name, glorifying his name. And yet it's possible to use the power of his name 
and not be connected to the person. It is possible to, to exercise the power and the authority of the name of Jesus and not be in a saving relationship. Casting out demons. You know, the sons of the Pharisees were casting out demons. Yet, uh, we don't have any, any uh, way of knowing the depth of which their connection to Jesus. But Jesus said to the Pharisees when they accused him of casting out demons under the power of Beelzebul, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then how do, you, how do your kids cast them out? How do your sons cast them out? And also, there were Jewish exorcists in Acts chapter 19 who were using the name of Jesus to cast out demons who did not know him and suffered the consequences for it. And then we can, you can also think of Judas. Judas is the clearest example of someone who was able to cast out demons and yet did not have a saving relationship with Jesus. Right? You remember when Jesus gave authority to all 12 of his disciples and sent them out to go preach that the kingdom had come and he gave them authority to cast out demons. When they all came back, they did not say, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? You know, we were all doing really good. But Judas, he just wasn't cutting it. Nobody, said, nobody came back saying, why can't Judas cast out demons? Right? Nobody at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, none of them said, ah, Judas, he never could cast out demons. Right? Judas was with them. He did everything that the other apostles did. He looked just like them. And yet he was not among them. He was not connected to Jesus. And so, yes, possible to cast out demons and not have a living relationship with Jesus. And then third, did we not do mighty miracles in your name? It's incredible. I, I said miracles. It, the text says mighty works in the ESV translation. I said miracles because the word in the Greek that is translated here is the word for miracles. It's the word that so often through the synoptic gospels is used to communicate miracles. It's used about Jesus when he does healing miracles this word is, 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 is miracle. So they're doing mighty miracles in the name of Jesus, and yet they don't know him. And you might think, how is that possible? Just remember the warning of Jesus in Matthew 24, 24. He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Praise God, it's not possible to lead astray even the elect, because Jesus elect, he, he watches over his children and guards us. And yet, there will be people who do false miracles. There will be people who under spiritual power or even trying to manipulate the name of Jesus will do incredible things. And Jesus says, I, I never knew you. Look at verse 23. These are the most frightening words. He says, I never knew you. He does not say, oh, these folks, I, I knew them for a little while uh, and but we, you know, we fell out of favor. Like we, we knew each other when we were kids, but after high school, we moved away and we just kind of lost touch. He, he does not say, "I knew you for a season, and now I don't know you." He says, "I never knew you." Folks who were doing all of these incredible things, prophesying in the name of Jesus, casting out demons, performing miracles in His name, and He says, "I never knew you. Never." And it's the knowing here that is the point of this sermon today. The, the point that Jesus wants every one of us, I believe, to consider, do you know him? Because when he's talking about, I didn't know you, he's not saying I, I suddenly wasn't aware of your existence. 
he means we weren't in a covenant relationship. We weren't in a unique relationship, a living, vibrant, real, personal relationship. That's not us, is what he was saying. And we never had it. Like Amos chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus says about the children of Israel, you only have I known of all of the families of the earth. And what is he saying there? He's not saying, I, I didn't know there were other people on the planet. I, he says, you, I've chosen you. The knowing means choosing. I have chosen you to be my special nation, my treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7. He's saying we were in, you remember, the, 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 you're the only ones who knew my will. You're the only ones whom I've ever married. Think of this in the sense of knowing as in marriage. Because the Ten Commandments, God gave His commandments. that The nation of Israel would know Him and His will. He's saying nobody else is. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about. I, I never was in that relationship with you. I never knew you to those depths. And so the requirement to enter into the kingdom of heaven is knowing Jesus. It's, it's knowing him. The error, the significant error that these people have engaged in is relying on their works, on what they have done, not who they have known. So the call here is for us to think and, and set your face towards making sure you understand what it means to know Jesus. I'm going to give you a little pointer here. But this is a huge topic which requires much more thinking. But I'm going to point you to one verse. That, and if you navigate with me in your scripture, your copy of scripture, Philippians 3, 8 to 10. Philippians 3, 8 to 10. Paul talks about knowing Jesus. Right? It's incredible to me that there, are, there will be great preachers, incredible orators, skilled speakers who will stand before God in, in the presence of Jesus and he will say, I never knew you. There will be people who have cast out demons who will stand before Jesus and find themselves cast out of heaven. It's incredible to me. And there are those who have worked miracles in the name of Jesus and Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So we have to know what it means to know Jesus. And Paul says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings becoming like him. Twice Paul says that. I want to know him. And he says a couple of things. Here's, what, what does it take to get to know Jesus? And Paul says, first of all, it takes treasuring him above every other thing. He says, I'm, I'm ready to let go of everything. I will lose everything in order to gain Christ. There's nothing in this world that I want more than Jesus. And, and at this point in my preparation, I just imagined, what if, what if you, it was possible to have one thing? You could, if you get one thing in all of the world, 
what would it be? One wish and it'll be granted. What would you ask for? Imagine yourself standing before the Amazon of the world that has every possible thing or possession and saying, one thing, search bar, Jesus. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. If, if, I had, if, if Amazon was the means by which I get the one thing that we want most of, it's, it's Jesus. If you're standing at the mall of the world and everything is wide open to you, what would you go in and get? You know that you win a prize, you got four minutes to run in and get one thing and come out and whatever you can carry, you get to take it with you. Where's Jesus? Where, where is he? That's what Paul is saying. There's nothing on the planet I want more than Jesus. That's the kind of, of determination that it takes. That's the kind of value seeing Christ as the greatest treasure. So Paul says, I'm ready to lose everything. And in comparison to him, everything else looks like rubbish. Is that you? Is that me? Is that us? Do we treasure Jesus to that degree? Second thing, this knowing Jesus only comes by faith. It only comes by faith. Paul says it three times in this little paragraph. There's no other way to know him. You don't earn a privilege to stand in his, in his presence. You, you know the fault of, of what these folks did who, to whom Jesus is speaking is they said, look at what we did. Surely you'll let us in. None of that matters. I mean, wonderful, incredible things, right? Prophesying, speaking God's word, casting out demons, that's great. And, and then, uh, you know, even doing mighty miracles. And I'm thinking, I, I don't know that I've ever done any of that stuff. I mean, maybe I speak God's word, hopefully rightly and truly, but casting out demons or, or mighty miracles. I've seen God do some miracles through prayer, but does that qualify? And those guys don't get in? We cannot put confidence in your standing before Jesus in deeds you have done. It doesn't work. None of it. If you were Jeff Bezos and you gave all of your money away to Mother Teresa, it wouldn't get him into heaven. Be careful of the confidence that you have in your deeds. They won't make a hill of beans difference when you stand before Jesus. Because what, is, what does Isaiah say? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in front of the holy and pure nature of God. Right? Salvation, knowing Jesus only comes by faith. Third, knowing Jesus comes by embracing righteousness. Embracing righteousness. Paul says it. I need a righteousness that's not mine. He said it, it comes by faith. And what I think that means practically for us is you've got to be willing to let go of every sin in your life in order to cling to Jesus. You've got to turn away from every sin repeatedly because you don't just do it once, right? We, I wish it was that easy. Repeatedly, we have to again and again say no to temptation, no to sin, and yes to Jesus. And I would encourage you, in the moments when you're tempted, that's what you need to do. You need to say, no, Jesus, come, fill me, satisfy me. Give me what I need. This is a lie. Don't believe the lie. And here Paul says, embracing a righteousness that's not my own. Knowing Jesus is embracing righteousness because there's no sin in him. 
And if you want to know a holy person, you've got to let go of unholiness. And then lastly, knowing Jesus comes from being willing to suffer for his namesake. Paul said it. I'm, if I want to be like him, I want to know him in his suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered. He came to this world and he suffered for the sake of righteousness. And if we're going to be his followers, he said to his disciples, if, they, if the world hated me, then do not be surprised when it hates you. If you want to look like me and live like me, the world is not going to applaud you. You've got to be willing to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. Let us not be ashamed of Christ Jesus. Right? Not going to be ashamed of the name of Jesus for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe it. Whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, salvation is life. So, let me wrap it up. Not everyone will be allowed to enter into heaven. Jesus is the one person who decides who does and who does not enter into heaven. On the last day, there will be many people who would be shocked that they are not getting in. I don't want you to be one of them. So set your heart on understanding, what does it mean to know Jesus? How do I know him? I've given you four things to think about. Next week, we're going to talk about even more because Jesus is going to expound doing the will of the Father. So we'll talk, read the next paragraph if you want to, to begin to dig in and to pray. But I don't want any of you to be shocked. They knew about Jesus, right? Those who did not get into heaven, they knew he was powerful. They knew he was worthy of respect. Yet they did not know him personally. They did not have a personal connection. They did not receive his spirit. They did not know him intimately. Do you? Do you, every one of you listening to my voice, do you know him? Do you know what pleases Jesus? Right? We said, we sang it. I want to know what moves you. Where do you find that? It, it's in the book. It's in the Bible. The things that please Jesus, that move his heart. I used to pray this. I still do. Not as much as I used to. When my kids were little, and now I'm feeling convicted because I just confessed before you all, I don't pray for my kids as often as I should. But when they were teeny tiny, I prayed for them every day. Lord, will you bless them? Will you keep them? Will you fill them with your spirit? Will you put your hand upon them and your spirit within them and cause them to love righteousness and to hate evil? I pray that almost every day for those kids. And I should pray it more. I'm sorry, I don't. You're old and I think you're, you're good. You're good kids. Two of them are getting married, so I'm a little bit emotional. And my, my, my daughter even asked me, will you please officiate the wedding? I thought, I don't even know if I'll make it through. And now I can't even make it through a sermon. And we're not even at the wedding yet. So who knows what's going to happen? I, I love my kids. I want to see them in heaven. I love you. I love every one of you. I want to see you following Jesus. There's no other place on the planet to find satisfaction than in Jesus Christ. There's no other place to find forgiveness of sins than in Jesus. And the world will tell you there's 10,000 ways to get to heaven. There's not. There's not. There's one way, and his name is Jesus. Know him with all of your heart. Seek him with all of your heart. I plead with you. Don't go home and watch TV if you don't know Jesus. 
know him with all of the fiber in your being. He's created us for a relationship with him. And that's what we're built for. Somebody asked me, what is my calling? It is to know Christ. Seek him with all of your heart. You'll find him. You will find him. found him when I was eight years old. I've never been the same since. He is here with us in this room. If you cry out to him, he will let you find him. God's word says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. You ask him for his Holy Spirit, he will give you his Holy Spirit. And keep asking. That is a prayer. I, yes, I, I have the Spirit of God dwelling within me, but I pray it every day. Lord, will you please fill me? Right? We, just, we, get, we get muddied from the muck of the world. It's just how it is. And, and, and we need to be filled every day with the Spirit of God. He loves you people. That's why Jesus came and died. To give us life. Don't look at Jesus as some mighty judge waiting to squash your soul and keep you from enjoying any kind of benefit. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with happiness and goodness. It begins with happiness and it begins with Jesus saying, here's heaven. You want to enter in? Come to me. If you are not sure where you stand with the Lord, I would love for you to go home without any doubts. There will be people at that corner right over there, that sign that says prayer. We'd love to pray with you about your relationship with the Lord Jesus. There's another place over here to pray. And I want to invite you. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Because it is possible to know and love this wonderful, sweet Jesus who lived so long ago, and yet he left us wonderful words by which we today can know him intimately. Let's pray. Ah, Lord Jesus, without you, we're nothing. Without you, we can do nothing. And Lord, I pray, would you let every one of us hear these words and take them to heart? May we not let them pass through our head, go in one ear and out the other, but Lord, let, let, us, let us get on a journey of pursuing you for as many days as you graciously choose to give us. And I ask you, let your word open up truths about your character, who you are, so that we do know what you love and we know what you hate. And Lord, as I've prayed for so long for my children, I pray for all of us today. Let us love the things that you love and let us hate the things that you hate. Let us embrace righteousness. Let us turn away from evil. Let us repent even right now for anyone who's been toying with sin, and playing with sinfulness. God, let us confess it even now and repent of our sinfulness. And free us, Lord, to cling to you and you alone. So Lord Jesus, I pray, let us know you and pour out your spirit upon us so that we can know you and know that we know you and not doubt it. And so our hope is in you, Lord Jesus. Our confidence is in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.